The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning, Bereans. Appreciate you being here this morning. It's Resurrection Sunday. You know, the single most significant event in the history of the human race took place on the first Sunday after Passover in the year about AD 30. It's the day we're celebrating today. The Israelites called it the Feast of First Fruits. To the church, it's known as Resurrection Sunday. Now, yesterday was the Jewish Feast of Passover. And what we need to understand is that Passover was a shadow. It was a type. And the anti-type was Calvary. Passover was celebrated on the 14th of Nisan, and Yeshua was crucified on the 14th of Nisan. When they're crucifying the lambs to celebrate Passover, the Lord, the Lamb of God, is dying. And so while Israel is celebrating that Passover, the true Lamb of God is being crucified. Then three days later, on the Feast of first fruits, Yeshua rose from the dead. And the first fruits pictures resurrection. So today, I think we're all aware, is Resurrection Sunday. It's the day that Christ defeated death and rose from the grave. The resurrection is the foundation of the Christian faith. I mean, to deny the resurrection of Christ is to deny the entire basis of the Christian faith. The Christian faith is not based primarily on the teachings of Yeshua, the life of Yeshua, the miracles of Yeshua, or the death of Yeshua, the Christian faith is based on all of these culminating in the resurrection of Yeshua from the dead. If there's no resurrection, none of these other factors matter. Okay? The resurrection is foundational. Without it, the death of Yeshua just becomes the heroic death of a misguided martyr. It becomes the pathetic death of a deranged lunatic. Or the execution of a liar. Because any man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Yeshua said wouldn't be a great moral teacher. Some people say, oh, he was just a great moral teacher. No, you're not a great moral teacher if you say the stuff he said and it's not true. Yeshua was either a liar, a lunatic, or the Lord. And the resurrection demonstrates very clearly that he is Lord. Now, For our time this morning, I want to do something a little bit different, and instead of looking at the resurrection, because in our conference in two two weeks, Mike Sullivan's going to be teaching on the resurrection, two-part series. He'll tell you everything you want to know about the resurrection, so we're not going to talk about that this morning. I want to back up a few days, and I want to look at the crucifixion of Christ. Now, when we talk about the cross in a theological sense, We're not talking about a piece of wood used to torture men. The cross is metonymy. It's metonymy for the doctrine of the atonement. Now, metonymy is a word or expression used as a substitute for something which is closely associated. Notice how the cross is used in these verses. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Now I think it should be obvious here that when Paul talks about the cross of Christ, he's not talking about the actual wooden cross that Yeshua died on. He's talking about the doctrine of the cross. Galatians 5.11 But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. Again, we see here that Paul's not talking about an instrument used to execute criminals. He's talking about a doctrine. And the doctrine of the cross proclaims an event of historical and theological significance. It points to Christ, who died the death of a criminal but whose death concerned the eternal destiny of man. The doctrine of the cross is the doctrine of atonement. And the doctrine of atonement explains exactly what happened on Calvary and the meaning of the death 
of the Lord Yeshua upon that cross. I think every believer should have some understanding and be able to explain the doctrine of the atonement because that is the heart of the gospel. And to understand the atonement, you need to first understand that man is a sinner. You have to start there. Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world, and sin came into the world through Adam, speaking about Adam, through one man, that was Adam, and death through sin, because of Adam's sin, death came. And I believe it's talking about spiritual death here, not physical death. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. See, Adam was the representative of mankind. God put him in the garden. He put him in there to represent us. When he sinned, we sinned with him because he represented us. As our representative, he brought sin into the world, which brought death on all men. And everybody born since Adam has been born separated from God. Sin, death. Man in this condition is spiritually dead. And there's nothing he can do about it because dead people don't do much about anything, okay? So carry that analogy. They're dead. They don't do anything. We are spiritually bankrupt. There's nothing we can do to fix this situation. And because of this condition, God Himself introduced a program to redeem His elect. He literally bought us back for Himself. He invaded human history in the form of the man Christ, Yeshua. Yeshua left heaven to be born as a baby, to live a sinless life, and to die a substitutionary death on Calvary. And on that cross, Yeshua took upon Himself our sin, and He received the judgment of God that we deserved as sinners. And because He was an innocent, infinite sufferer, He satisfied fully and completely the righteous demands of a holy God, and God was propitiated. Now, we don't hear much about propitiation anymore. We don't hear much about doctrine anymore, okay? But propitiation is the removal of wrath by the offering of a sacrifice. Christ was the sacrifice. He removed the wrath of God from God's people. Sinners deserve God's wrath because they have violated the holy standard of God. And believing sinners are declared righteous through redemption on the basis of propitiation. God's justice was satisfied by the death of Christ. And sin, your sin, as a believer, has been paid for. And because of that, we can now have fellowship with God through faith in His sacrificial death. It's all paid, people. Every bit of it. Yesterday's sin, today's sin, tomorrow's sin. It's covered. It's paid for by the blood of Christ. And all this is possible because of the cross. And when we talk about crucifixion, which was a... The physical aspect of crucifixion was horrible. It was a horrible death. It was a slow, agonizing, brutal death. And it raises the question, why did Yeshua have to die this way? Why did His death have to be so brutal? And I think there's two main reasons for that. First of all, I think that God wants us to see how much He hates sin. He wants us to see the pain, the destruction that sin brings. Believer, don't ever take sin lightly. Look at the cross. And as you see the Son of God hanging there so mangled that His form didn't resemble the form of a man, that's how much God hates sin. I think we understand that. Now, second reason, and you may not have thought of this, but had Yeshua died through hanging, or had He died being beheaded, we wouldn't have been able to watch Him as He died and see how He responded to things. Remember, as believers, we're called to imitate God. Ephesians 5.1, be imitators of God as dear children. We're called to abide in Christ, to walk as He walked. So what we see on the cross 
is a picture of our God suffering one of the most gruesome sufferings a man can go through. And we get to see his reaction. We get to see what he says while he's there. You know, when we're in great physical or emotional pain, it changes our attitude sometimes. It changes how we are, and we don't always react the way we should when we're upset, when we're hurt, when we're in pain. And our conscience may even prod us to do better, but sometimes we just don't care. Because we feel so bad, either physically or emotionally, that we just think it's okay to act how we want and lash out at people. And I think you men know what I'm talking about, because men are, for the most part, big babies when it comes to pain and suffering. You know, women have babies, so they're a lot better at dealing with pain. You know? You know what I'm talking about. Don't try to lie about it. Deny it. Okay? When our pain, when our stress levels are low, it's a lot easier to be what God wants us to be, right? To treat people right. I think the real test comes when our pain, when our stress levels are high. And in times like this, it's good to remember how our ultimate example handled stress, handled pain. Yeshua's example on the cross provides great inspiration and great encouragement to all of us to help us to respond to others in the way that he did. And I think this is what the writer of Hebrews was encouraging his readers to do when he said, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. I think he's saying here, Consider Christ on the cross. Consider is from the Greek word analogizomai, and it means to consider by way of comparison. To, to look at Him on the cross and consider what He went through. So what I'd like to do this morning is to go back to that day in history and look at the last words of Christ as He hung on the cross. There are seven sayings of Christ on the cross that are recorded for us in the Gospels. Now you know seven is the number of perfection. Seven is the number of completion. Biblically, it's, a, it's the not perfect number. So... We have seven sayings of Christ as He hung on the cross. And it's interesting to note that all seven of these have a different theme. They reveal Yeshua's innermost feeling as He pours out His life for us. And He provides a very powerful example, I think, of how we too are to react in times of pain and suffering. Now, I want to just remind you here that Yeshua was a Jewish rabbi. I think that's very important to remember at this point. The rabbis devoted their lives to the text of the Scripture. The memorization of the written and oral Torah was such a large part of Jewish education that most of the contemporaries of Yeshua had large portions of this material, at least almost all of the Torah, firmly committed to memory. Now, today, Christians have a hard time reading Leviticus. Okay, can you imagine memorizing the first five books of the Bible and memorizing it in such a way that you have a working knowledge of it? They didn't spend a lot of time watching TV, you know, back then, or playing video games. When they weren't working, even when they were working, I mean, the meditation of the Scriptures was paramount to them. It even goes on today in Israel. Kids, you'll see them when they have a spare moment, they pull out their scripture and they're working on the memory, all right, learning it. Now, if you can remember from our past studies, you know that in Yeshua's day, there were two types of rabbis. The first were called Torah teachers. And Torah teachers were people who considered to be masters of the Torah, which meant they had the first five books of the Bible committed to memory. And like I said, it wasn't just the rabbis, most kids had the first five books by the time they were 12, memorized. There was another small group of what's called rabbis with shmika. And they were masters of the Torah and the half-Torah. Half-Torah is the Hebrew word that simply means the rest. In other words, they were masters of what the Jew called the Tanakh, what we call the Old Testament. All right, These rabbis knew the entire Tanakh by memory. 
Now, you think about the time commitment to memorize the Tanakh. All right? Well, these rabbis not only learned the text, okay? It wasn't just something. They lived the text. They taught the text. They prayed the text. It was the desire of every rabbi to die reciting the text. Now, when I was in Bible college, I learned a couple things. I learned that you didn't really need to go to college to learn the Bible, okay? Because what they did is they said, here's this book, read this book. And I'm like, why do I need to come here and pay you to tell me to read this book? I could just read this book on my own, all right? But I was inspired by a teacher I had that was, uh, you know, just a man who had the Scripture committed to memory. We'd come into class, and he would say, okay, someone give me a Scripture. And you could just call out a Scripture, just cite it. And he would tell you where it was. Never saw him miss. But one of the greatest things that happened to me in Bible college was a lot of the, my classes required memorization of verses, sometimes up to 27 verses a week. So I didn't have time for much anything but Scripture memory. And I had an index card, and I'd just be going over my constantly, constantly. And one day we're sitting in church, and I just broke out crying and got up and left, and my wife later says, I didn't get what you saw in that message. I said, I didn't want to listen to the message. I was reviewing the scripture in my head and it just tore me up. You know, God gets a hold of you. Well, you can imagine the commitment to memorizing the Bible and it's just going through your head constantly. That changes you, people. It really does. And to the Jew, it was so important. The Orthodox Israelite, for the past 2,400 years, has prayed that when he dies, he would die reciting Psalm 22. It's known as the death psalm. And he would die with Shema on his lips. Psalm 22, as I said, is known as the death psalm. And I believe that everything Yeshua said on the cross, the seven sayings that he says, came from a result of him reciting Psalm 22. Psalm 22 is pivotal, pivotal for a correct understanding of what Yeshua, I think, went through on the cross. So for our study this morning, what I want to do is I want to go through the seven sayings that Christ uttered from the cross. And as we go through these sayings, I want you to keep in mind, he's not sitting in his living room on the couch when he's saying these things. All right? He's got nails driven through his wrists, through his feet. It's agonizing to catch a breath because of the weight of the body pulling. You'd have to try to push up on the nails that are pierced through your feet to lift your body high enough to get a breath of air. So he's in great agony when he's saying these things. And that's important that we understand that. Well, the first thing that Yeshua said from the cross was, And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Yeshua said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. The first thing he has to say is about forgiveness. He's there nailed again to the cross in great agony. And instead of being consumed with his own pain and misery, he's asking forgiveness for the people responsible for putting him on the cross. This is the first of the seven sayings of Christ. Forgiveness. He asked the Father to forgive. And this is the Greek word, me, which means to cancel, to remit, to pardon. It's used of loans in Matthew 18.27 as well as referring to the remission of guilt. And forgiveness, believer, is choosing to no longer hold something against a person. In Yeshua's case, it was asking the Father not to hold His execution against His killers. He says, for they don't know what they're doing. Who is He asking the Father to forgive here? Is it the soldiers? I mean... To them, Yeshua is just another criminal. I mean, driving spikes, that's all in a day's work. They crucified a lot of people. It was very possible that they didn't know what they were doing. What about Pilate? He's arguably the most powerful man in Jerusalem. He perceives that Yeshua is innocent of the trumped-up charges against him. His wife even warns him in a dream, don't have anything to do with that man. And yet Pilate appeases the Jewish leaders and grants their request against all sense of pride and Roman justice. How could he not know what he's doing? What about the Jewish leaders? 
the high priestly family, the scribes, the Pharisees, they were all out to destroy Yeshua. They manipulated his words. They brought false witnesses against him. They put political pressure on Pilate and stirred up the crowd who demand the crucifixion rather than release him. How could they not know what they're doing? But even though each responsible party acted wickedly and unrighteously, Yeshua gives them the benefit of the doubt and says, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And it's interesting, the early church leaders held that very view. They probably got it from Yeshua on the cross. But Acts 13, 27 says, For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize Him, nor understand the utterance of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning Him. So here we're told that the Jewish rulers, they didn't recognize, they didn't understand what they were doing. Paul says the same thing in 1 Corinthians 2.8. He says, none of the rulers of this age understood this. For if they had, they wouldn't have crucified the Lord of glory. Now I think the word rulers here applies to the human rulers and the cosmic rulers. All right, the gods behind this. Had they known, they wouldn't have done it. They thought they're getting rid of them. No, they're fulfilling the plan of God. So this prayer of Yeshua to forgive his enemies stands just as a brilliant light in the midst of the darkness of crucifixion. And what we see here is Yeshua practiced what he preached. In Luke 6, 27, 28, he says, But I say unto you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. People, the application to all of us who call ourselves Yeshua's disciples is very clear. If Yeshua intercedes for the forgiveness of His enemies who are guilty of gross wickedness, how do you and I hold things against our brothers and sisters, just petty things, and don't want to forgive? Yeshua taught that we are to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. When's the last time you did that? So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For He makes the sun rise on the evil and the good, sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? So if we're disciples, if we're followers of Yeshua, we need to learn to love our enemies. We need to imitate our Lord. We need to follow Him here in the path of forgiving those who have done us wrong, who have tried to hurt us. Forgiveness, that's the first thing He says on the cross. We find Yeshua's second saying in Luke 23, 43. And He said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with Me in paradise. Now this is encouraging Shocking to me. I mean, again, he's on the cross. He's suffering greatly. And what he's doing here is giving hope to somebody else. How often are you in great pain and great misery and you're giving hope to other people? Who do you say this to? He said this to a man who's being crucified with him. Now, both of the thieves who were crucified with Christ had early on joined bystanders in mocking him. We see that in Mark 15, 32. But Luke tells us, one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. So the criminals making fun of Yeshua's inability to do anything despite his exalted title of Messiah. In other words, the criminals say, Hey, where's all this talk about Messiah? Can't you do something here? You're dying just like us. But a miraculous change occurred in the other criminal. He came to believe. He too had mocked Yeshua earlier, but now he rebuked the other criminal. He says, but he said to the other, but the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. So this guy's realizing the first step here, he's a sinner. He knows he's a sinner. And Christ came. To die for sinners. And he said to him, Yeshua, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He not only sees his sin, but he sees Yeshua as someone who can do something about it. He trusts him. And to this Yeshua responds, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. 
Now, what exactly is Yeshua telling this criminal here in this verse? Well, first of all, paradise is derived from a Persian word meaning garden or park. And the Septuagint uses paradise to translate the Hebrew words for the Garden of Eden in Genesis 2 and 3. Over the year, the terms became synonymous, and eventually paradise came to refer to heaven. Paradise is only used three times in the New Testament. It's used here, and it's used in Revelation 2.7, where he says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now notice what we find here in the paradise is the tree of life. Now Judaism of Yeshua's day equated paradise with the new Jerusalem. We see this tree again in Revelation 22, which is the new Jerusalem. 22, 1 and 2 says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, brightest crystal flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with the twelve kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. So in the new Jerusalem, which is the new covenant, we have access to this tree of life. Well, Paul also talks about paradise in 2 Corinthians 12, 3 and 4. He says, And I know that this man was caught up into paradise, whether in the body, out of the body, I don't know. God knows. And he heard things he cannot be told, which man may not utter. So Paul seems to equate the third heaven here with paradise. And I think we can identify paradise with the presence of God. All right, so he's saying, today you will be with me in paradise. Today you'll be with me in the presence of God. So Yeshua is promising this believing thief that he will be with him that day in the presence of God. Now, a question that we have to ask is, well, did they actually go into the presence of God that day? He says, today you'll be with me in paradise. Now, this is difficult because we know that, well, until the Lord returned in the second coming, people didn't go into the presence of God because that way was not open. So how do we deal with that? Well, he says today, but we're saying, no, not really that day. He didn't. Well, one way to deal with it is understanding the Greek, there's no punctuation. And Yeshua could have said, I say to you today, you'll be with me in paradise. This is how, I think, one of the easiest solutions, this is how the Scripture 2009 translates it. And Yeshua said to him, truly I say to you today, comma, You'll be with me in paradise. So he's not telling me in paradise that day. He's just telling me, you'll be in paradise. I'm telling you that right now. That's an option, all right? A big difference punctuation can make. And the main point here that I want you to see is Christ is dying a slow, horrible death, and he's giving hope to another dying man. That's our Lord. That's who we're to imitate. We find the third saying in John 19, 26 and 27. When Yeshua saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his home. So again, here we see Christ dying on the cross in great agony, and he's caring about others. He's concerned about his mom. And... and (laughs) This is what's strange. He's concerned about his mom. His mom's got four other sons. Okay? There's James, Joses, Simon, Judas. Yet for reasons we don't understand, Yeshua commits her care to Lazarus, the disciple whom he loved. And again, we have to think, you know, when we're in pain, when we're going through suffering, how caring are we for other people? Yeshua is not consumed with his own pain. He's reaching out to take care of his mom. That's just, it's a pretty incredible thing. And again, he's got four brothers. Well, he doesn't even need to worry about it. They'll take care of mom, right? No, for some reason, he asked John to do that. Fourth saying, at the ninth hour, Yeshua cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, Why? Have you forsaken me? All right, I believe what this, what is happening here is Yeshua is dying spiritually. This is spiritual death. During 
His entire existence, which is from eternity past because there is no beginning. Yeshua had an intimate and a vibrant relationship with God the Father. But now, because He's taking our place on the cross, because He's boring our sins in His body, the Father, who's too holy to look upon sin, had turned the countenance of His glory away from the Son. And Yeshua is experiencing separation from the Father, which I term spiritual death. He died physically, and He died spiritually for us. Now let me show you what I used to back that up. Isaiah 53, 9. And they made His grave with the wicked and with the rich man in His deaths. Although He had done no violence, there was no deceit in His mouth. So here Isaiah uses the intensive plural of deaths. Now the lemma or the lexical form of malvet is what he's using here. And the singular construct is mat, meaning death. All right, now hang on a minute here because this is, this is technical, but I think it's important. All right, you don't have to remember this, but for those of you who want to dig this up, it'll be in the notes. The plural absolute form Motim, meaning deaths, and adding a third person masculine gender, singular number, pronominal suffix to the plural construct of mavet yields motim, meaning deaths. And this is the form that occurs here in Isaiah 53, 9, with the addition of the prepositional prefix. Now, Brown, Driver, Briggs, Lexicon lists movet as being plural. The plural declination of Movet only occurs elsewhere in Ezekiel 28.10, where it says, He shall die the deaths of the uncircumcised by the hand of foreigners, as I have spoken, declares the Lord Yahweh. So believers, we have spiritual life because Yeshua endured a spiritual death, a separation from the Father as the sins of the human race were poured out upon Him. Now, Yeshua's own people didn't recognize what was happening. And in Mark 15, 35, it says, And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he's calling for Elijah. When he's saying, Eli, Eli. He's calling for Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge of sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come and take him down. See, they knew that the, rab- the rabbis knew that when they were in distress, Sometimes they would look to Elijah for help. And they assumed that he is calling for Elijah here. He's asking for help. Now, connected with this and I think emphasizing it further, we find our fifth saying, after this, Yeshua, knowing that all was finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. All right, now, so what, is, what does this mean? I'm just thirsty, I need a drink. I think what he's saying here, he's talking here about the pain of spiritual death. Because eternal life, which is fellowship with God, is illustrated in the Scripture as living water. So if you don't have the water, you thirst. Look at John 4.14. But whosoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So the... This thirst is the absence of eternal life and is fulfilled by the water of life. In Revelation, John tells us that the blessing of God's presence is they shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor the scorching heat. They'll have water. And John tells us that water is life for the thirsty. In Revelation 22, 17, the Spirit and the bride say, Come! Let the one who hears say, Come! And let the one who is thirsty come. If you're not thirsty, you're not going to come. Christ is thirsting. Let the one who desires to take the water of life without price. Yeshua was obviously physically thirsty. But I think He's saying here, I thirst for the fellowship with my Father. I need living water. And we see here again that the Scriptures are being fulfilled. Psalm 69.21 says, They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. Mark says, 
And Yeshua uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. Now, what we have to understand is from the cross, this, is, this would be an extraordinary act. Because asphyxiation characterized the victims of crucifixion. They could hardly breathe, and being able to cry loudly would have been virtually impossible, yet that's what Yeshua did. What was this loud cry? Well, we find the answer in the sixth saying. That is, and Yeshua had received the sour wine. He said, it is finished. A loud cry. He just screams this out. It's finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. That's the loud cry. It is finished. The Greek word tetelestai. It's a banking term. It means paid in full. The work of redemption, the eternal plan of the Father, the purpose of the incarnation, the salvation of God's elect, it is finished. It's done. Okay? Nothing more can be added. And when you hear these preachers, when you hear people from other churches say, well, you got to do this and you got to do this, and just say, it's finished. I don't have to do anything. Salvation is not about do this. It's about He did this. It's done. There's no works of righteousness. There's no ritual ceremony. No rites of passage can we add to what Yeshua has done. It is finished. And people, there's no effort of the flesh. No attention to endless duties or absolution by a priest can add to Christ's work. He said it's done. It's finished. Now there are those who teach that from the cross, Yeshua left the cross and went down to hell to suffer for three days. But he didn't. The work is finished, and that's what he said. It is finished. Now, Kenneth Copeland, who's a totally whacked-out teacher, says, when he said it is finished on the cross, he was not speaking of the plan of redemption. The plan of redemption had just begun. (laughs) Really? There were still three days and three nights to be gone through. And Jesus was down in that pit, and there he suffered the punishment for three horrible days and nights for Adam's treason. Now, this guy is wrong on so many levels, it isn't even funny, okay? He's one of the wealthiest, wealthiest preachers you're going to find. He has several private jets. I mean, he's just, he's milking people for all they're worth, okay? And his doctrine is about as whacked out as you're going to get. But he said he suffered. But Christ said, no, he didn't. He said, it's finished. And there's plenty of religions today that are seeking to convince people that there's just something more you got to do. It's not enough with Christ. Yeah, you have to trust Christ, but you also have to do this, this, and this. That's contrary to what Yeshua stated here on the cross. He didn't say, we're almost done, folks. We're getting near the end. He said, it's finished. The work has been done. And he cries out triumphantly that God's purpose had been accomplished. Our seventh and final saying is found in Luke 23, 46. Then Yeshua, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. And I think this is a picture of reunion. When he said this, he breathed his last. He looked forward to finally being fully reunited with his Father. At that dramatic moment, Yeshua died for you and me because the true Passover lamb had paid the sacrifice for all who trust in him. Now the text in Mark goes on to say, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now Matthew and Luke join Mark in mentioning the torn veil in the temple, as does the writer of Hebrews. And there's a lot of theology bound up in this torn veil. What does this mean? What's the significance of that? Well, the, the veil was made of blue and purple scarlet linen. And Josephus, the historian, Jewish historian, tells us that it was, it was a great double veil, each measuring 60 feet high, 30 feet wide, and it was as thick as a man's hand. And there was an opening at one end which allowed you to walk between the veils and then come out the other end in the Holy of Holies. This is the innermost sanctum. It was the place where no Jew was permitted to go, not even the priests were permitted to come there, only the high priest, and that once a year was allowed to in, enter that presence. On Yom Kippur, the high priest would enter beyond the veil and offer an atoning sacrifice for the sins of the nation. They never felt like 
their sins were forgiven until the high priest came out of that temple. All right, and I think that's a picture of the Lord returning from heaven when salvation is complete. Now, in the Holy of Holies, there used to be the Ark of the Covenant in there. All right, but the Ark had disappeared when Nebuchadnezzar attacked the city 600 years earlier. Some say Nebuchadnezzar took the Ark. I don't believe he did. I think the Jewish, the priests, the rabbis, not rabbis then, the Jewish priests, they hid ark they hid it somewhere because they knew the city was going down and there's some hints in scripture how they did this but uh, that's not for our study today but i think they hid the ark so there's no ark in there so when the high priest goes in once a year to sprinkle the blood on the ark what's he doing (laughs) nothing there nobody's home all right there was a rock in there just a basic stone with generations of dried blood on it. And now we know the Holy Holy signified the presence of God. And the veil's there to keep men out. They couldn't come into the presence of God because their sins separated them. So now, because God is dying for man, man's sins no longer separate him, the veil is torn and the way is open. And there's a lot, I think, here. I think one of the things is when that veil tore, the people could see there's nobody home. There's nothing in there. The ark's not there. Okay? Some say it symbolizes the departure of God's presence. Well, God departed in Ezekiel 9. He left the temple. Okay, Yeshua was God returning, but it's a new temple now. And it's symbolism because Yeshua's death on the cross indicated that God no longer would dwell in a temple made by men. But he would dwell within the hearts of those people who trusted him as Savior. And it was meant to show that God would usher in a new covenant that would be complete fulfillment of everything the old covenant in the temple represented. So God doesn't dwell in a building somewhere. And I constantly fight the issue of people calling the place where they meet the sanctuary. That's not a sanctuary. It's just a room. You are the sanctuary. You are the dwelling place of God. Now, if you go in that room, guess what? The sanctuary, you're in that room. You are the sanctuary, though. That We're the dwelling place of God, not some room somewhere. That's old covenant thought that God dwells in some room. He indwells us. We're the body of Christ. We're the temple of God. We're sacred space. Boy, that's, <laughs> that's a lot to think about. Okay. Mark 15, 39 says that when the centurion who stood facing him saw in this way, he breathed his last and said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. There was something about the way that Yeshua died that deeply affected those who stood by him. They were all affected by it. A Roman soldier who no doubt had witnessed countless deaths by crucifixion, that was his job, he's compelled to praise God. When the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God saying, Certainly, This man was innocent. And I think a lot of this involves the seven sayings. They see this man up there suffering, and he's caring for other people. He's forgiving other people. He's taking care of his mother. He's calling out to his father. And they're like, this is very different, okay? And not only the soldier, but a convicted criminal, who a short time before was ridiculing the Lord, is now penitently asking to be remembered when he comes into his kingdom. There's also a timid member of the Sanhedrin who was fearful of others knowing his faith in Christ, and now all of a sudden he has the courage to ask Pilate for the body of Yeshua. Something happened there about the way Yeshua died that deeply affected those who stood by. And I think we see this in the seven sayings of Christ from the cross. Now Mark goes on to say, there were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene, the Mary and mother of James, the younger of Joses, and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Now, i got a question here for you. Where are the men? (laughs) That's right. They're hiding. I mean, where's James? Where's John? Where's Peter? Nobody's there. Except Lazarus. How come Lazarus is bold enough to be there along with the women and no one else? 
Well, you had to think, yeah, Lazarus had been dead. And he overcame death, so he's like, hey, I'm not afraid of you guys. I, I'm friends with the guy who has resurrection power. So he's, he's there, and he's interesting. I mean, so we, I think we can understand his bravery. All the other men were gone, but the women who were disciples of Yeshua, they're there. They followed him from Galilee, and they're there with him as he dies. So we see the courage in these women. Now, as I began this message, I said that the rabbis not only learned the text, they lived the text, they taught the text, and they prayed the text. And it was the desire of every rabbi to die reciting the text. The Orthodox Israelite, for the past 2,400 years, has prayed that when he dies, he would die reciting Psalm 22. And Yeshua was a Jewish rabbi, so I'm quite confident that Yeshua died reciting Psalm 22. And I believe that everything Yeshua said on the cross, these seven sayings, came as a result of things that reminded him as he went through this psalm. So I'd like to close this morning by reading Psalm 22, and I want to try to insert the seven sayings from the cross where I think they might have been said. Now, you know, this is not inspired, this is not you know, dogmatic, I'm just saying, I know that they wanted to die citing Psalm 22, and I know he said these seven things, So, but uh, I'm going to use a little license here and insert them where I think they might have went. I'm pretty confident of the first one. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? <laughs> why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? This is the fourth saying, you know. Uh, This is obvious, okay? I don't think there's a lot of questions about this one. The psalm goes on, Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned in the praise of Israel. In our Father, in you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. They cried out to you with rescue. If you, in you, they trusted and were not put to shame. So they cried out and they were rescued. I think this is saying, you will be with me in paradise. He is ministering to this man who is crying out to him. But I'm a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in Yahweh. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. I think this is where he comes up with the third saying, Woman, behold your son. He's talking about his mother. He commits his mother over to Lazarus. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me, the strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like the raving and roaring lion. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It's melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. And I think this is the fifth saying, I'm thirsty. My tongue sticks to my jaw. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Yahweh, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. He's calling on God. God, come to me. Deliver my soul from the sword. My precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I think this is the seventh saying, into your hands I commit my spirit. He said, you rescued me, coming back into your presence. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation I will praise you. You who fear Yahweh, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him. And stand in awe of him. All you offspring of Israel, for he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard. 
He's not hidden his face. He has heard when he cried out to him. And I think this is the first saying, Father, forgive them. He's crying out to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise Yahweh. May your hearts live forever. And then in verse 27 through 31, he says, All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to Yahweh. And all the families of the nation shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to Yahweh, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generations. They shall come and proclaim the righteous to a people yet unborn that he has done it. And I think that's the sixth saying, it's finished. He's done it. It's over. It's all done. So people, Yeshua learned the text. He lived the text. He taught the text. He prayed the text. He died the text. And so if we want to be like Yeshua, it starts by spending time in the text. And for some reason in our day, we think that Christians can function and do what they want without the text of Scripture. No, people, it doesn't happen. It's the Word of the living God He gave it to us. Our Lord immersed Himself in the text. If we're going to be like Him, that's what we have to do. You know, it's tough to be Christ-like, especially when you're in physical pain or emotional pain. But as we consider Christ, as we consider His caring example from the cross, as we consider Him in great agony, and yet He's ministering to other people, we're to be like Him. And we can be like Him if we abide in Him. And this is what John says in 1 John. Whoever says he abides, to abide in Christ is to walk in harmony with Him. It's to fellowship with Him. It's to commune with Him. If you say you abide in Him, then he says you ought to walk the same way He walked. If you're abiding in Christ, you're going to look like He looked. So if you're not walking like He walked, you're not going to be abiding and you're not going to look like He looked. But it all starts, people, with the text. The more time we spend, and and I think especially in the Gospels, because in the Gospels we see our Lord. And the more time we look at our Lord in the Gospels, the more we are conformed to that image of Him, the more we will act like Him, the more we will demonstrate to the world. We'll fulfill what Ephesians says, be imitators of God. Let's pray. Father, I thank You this morning for a look at our Lord on the cross. Father, we see your heart of compassion, your heart of care in the midst of great suffering. Father, we know we're called to be like you. It seems insurmountable, and I know you want us to depend on you for every bit of it. Lord, may we learn to trust you as we get to know your name by spending time in the text. Help us, Lord, to realize how important it is to spend time with you and your word. We love you, Father. Amen.